worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals and politics, the Obama era. This is episode three, The Audacity to Hope. I'm John Fia. In our last episode, we chronicled Barack Obama's meeting with Reverend Jeremiah Wright and his eventual conversion at Trinity United Church of Christ on Chicago's South Side. We also explored the Christian message Obama heard each week from Wright's pulpit. Wright spent over three decades preaching the gospel at Trinity, but for reasons we will explore in future episodes, he is predominantly known for three sermons all of which he delivered while Obama was living in Chicago and attending his church. In this episode, we analyze these sermons in their historical context, rather than the way people interpreted them later, and use them as a window into Wright's public theology. The first sermon was titled, The Day of Jerusalem's Fall. Jeremiah Wright preached it on September 16, 2001, five days after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. On that fateful day, Wright was in Newark, New Jersey, trying to find a way back home to Chicago. As he sat only miles from ground zero, Wright had time to reflect spiritually on what happened that day and what he would say on Sunday to his Trinity congregation. By the way, two Trinity deacons actually drove from Chicago to Newark to pick him up and bring him home to preach. Wright said that the Lord placed Psalm 137 on his mind and heart. In this passage, the psalmist remembers the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylonian soldiers in the 6th century B.C., when the psalmist asks God to punish those responsible for this cruel and violent act perpetrated on the holy city, he speaks on behalf of all the people of Israel. This is a psalm of collective lament. Wright begins the sermon by summarizing the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem as portrayed in 2 Kings 25. As the army of the Babylonians approached the city, the troops of Zedekiah, then the king of Judah, fled in the middle of the night. Zedekiah was captured, and these foreign soldiers slaughtered his children and then put out his eyes so that the last thing he remembered seeing was their murders. Wright compared Zedekiah to the workers in the World Trade Center. The last thing they saw were two commercial airlines crashing through their windows. 
But the Babylonians did not stop there. Later, they returned to Jerusalem, burned the temple, and destroyed the city walls. Wright used the word towers to describe the buildings of the city and compared the destruction of Jerusalem's walls to the breach in the wall of the Pentagon. The symbols of Israel's military and monetary power, Wright pointed out, were now gone. This work of terror changed these people's lives forever. Wright described it as a day of pain, anger, rage, outrage, terror, fear, death, destruction, and devastation. On September 16, 2001, no one in Trinity Church was going to miss Wright's analogy. Wright then turned to Psalm 137 and asked his congregation to focus specifically on the last three verses. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, raise it, raise it, that's R-A-Z-E, raise, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. As they lamented Jerusalem's fall, Wright said the Israelites made three distinct moves. First, they moved from reverence to revenge. The writer begins Psalm 137 with songs of remembrance and praise to God and ends with dead Babylonian babies. The people of Israel wanted God to pour out his wrath on the pagan nation that took them into exile. Second, the psalmist moved from worship to war. People of Israel went from paying tithes to payback, Wright said. And third, the psalmist invited the people of Israel to move from the hatred of armed enemies, the Babylonian army, to the hatred of unarmed innocents. The writer of this psalm prayed on behalf of his people that God would smash the little ones of Babylon against the rocks. The Israelites, Wright warned his 21st century flock, were in a dangerous place. Yet that is where they found themselves in 551 BC. And just to make sure no one missed the application, Wright brought it home. And that is where far too many people of faith are in 2001 AD. We have moved from the hatred of armed enemies to the hatred of unarmed innocents. We want revenge. We want paybacks. And we don't care who gets hurt in the process. Wright then paused and offered his congregation what he called a faith footnote. It was a deviation from his exposition of the passage, but Wright obviously thought the moment called for a slight detour. Wright described a segment on the 9-11 attacks that had recently appeared on Fox News. Edward Peck, a retired career diplomat and former ambassador to Baghdad, was explaining to Fox viewers, much to the chagrin of the Fox hosts, that Americans should not have been surprised by Osama bin Laden's attack on the United States. 
America's decade-long practice of violating no-fly zones, bombing foreign countries, and killing innocent civilians led bin Laden, Peck said, to simply do what we have been doing for a long time in various parts of the world. Peck then offered a list of examples that included Panama, Haiti, Cambodia, and Iraq. At this point, the Fox News hosts shut down the conversation. Don't ask me how Peck made it past the Fox producers, and I imagine he never appeared on the cable news network again, although I could be wrong, I didn't check. But Wright seized on this white man's remarks and compared them to Malcolm X's December 1963 speech, God's Judgment on White America. He delivered this speech shortly after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and Malcolm implied that the 35th president's death was God's punishment for violence propagated by the United States at home and abroad. The death of the white United States president, according to Malcolm X, was merely the devil's chickens coming back home to roost. At this point, Wright pulled no punches. We took this country by terror away from the Sioux, the Apache, the Arawak, the Comanche, the Arapaho, the Navajo, he said. This was America's own form of terrorism on its people. Wright went on. We took Africans from their country to build our way of ease and kept them enslaved and living in fear. He described these acts of injustice as terrorism. He referenced American bombings around the world that killed innocent civilians, babies, non-military personnel, unarmed teenagers and toddlers, pregnant mothers and hardworking fathers. Wright's faith footnote included references to the United States dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and America's support of apartheid in South Africa. Indeed, he concluded, now we are indignant because the stuff we have done overseas is now brought to our own front yards. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Wright spoke, one of his assistant pastors would later write, as a member of an oppressed group and as a citizen of a country that too often had been accused of and had engaged in oppressing others. Wright ended the sermon by telling his congregation to examine their relationships with God, with their families, and with each other. And he used this tragic moment in American history to call God's people on the south side of Chicago to action. It was a time for social transformation, Wright thundered. We have got to change the way we have been doing things as an arrogant, racist, military superpower. Yes, it was time for America to do battle. But for Wright, the war needed to be raged against racism, injustice, greed, AIDS, a healthcare system that leaves the nation's poor without coverage, and a Congress intent upon passing trillion-dollar tax cuts for the rich. In The Day Jerusalem Fell, Wright drew upon the Jeremiad, a style of holy rhetoric named after the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah that focused on the sins of God's people and the need for collective repentance. 
No one in Trinity United Church of Christ that day would have been surprised by Wright's words about the United States. African-American preachers and orators, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr., had been issuing Jeremiah's against the nation for more than a century. While white conservative evangelicals such as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson were suggesting that feminists, homosexuals, and abortion rights activists triggered God's wrath on 9-11, the black pastor, named, I might add, for an Old Testament prophet, was preaching about a different set of injustices that led to this moment. Wright was no less providential than Falwell and Robertson, but his lament was more connected to the African-American experience. I call our faith tradition the prophetic tradition of the Black church, Wright once said, because I take the theology of the Black church back to the prophets in the Hebrew Bible and to its last prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. Wright's faith footnote offered yet another history lesson for the people of Trinity United Church of Christ. Here we see Wright's debt to Carter G. Woodson, an early 20th century Black historian and writer. In his 1933 book, The Miseducation of the Negro, Woodson railed on the American education system for failing to teach Black history. In fact, Woodson wrote, Black kids were taught to admire the Hebrew, the Greek, the Latin, and the Teuton, and to despise the African. The education of African Americans, he said, was left almost entirely in the hands of those who have enslaved them and now segregate them. Since the schools would not teach blacks their heritage, Woodson hoped that the church might take up this charge. Wright spent decades taking up Woodson's challenge. African American history was the story of white oppression of black people. Anyone who knew this history, the Chicago pastor believed, would see that September 11, 2001 was indeed the day when the chickens came home to roost. The second Jeremiah Wright sermon we want to consider in this episode is Confusing God and Government. He preached this message on April 13, 2003, using a sacred day on the Christian calendar to address current events. Three weeks earlier, the United States began its military invasion of Iraq under the codename Operation Iraqi Freedom. And only four days before Wright took the pulpit on this Palm Sunday, Baghdad fell to American troops. According to U.S. General Tommy Franks, Operation Iraqi Freedom was carried out with the goals of ending the regime of Saddam Hussein, finding and destroying Iraqi's supposed weapons of mass destruction, driving terrorists from Iraq, securing Iraqi oil fields, and providing humanitarian aid to the people of Iraq. Wright focused his sermon on the words of John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. As Jesus prepared for his entry into Jerusalem, Wright said, he cried for his people because they were blinded by their culture's condition, circumstances, and oppression. 
Wright reminded his congregation that Jerusalem was under military occupation. They were an oppressed people. They once again wanted revenge against their oppressors, the Romans, and they sought a savior, a king, who would deliver them. They were tired of their oppression, Wright preached. They wanted the enemy up out of their land. They wanted their king to get this military monkey off their back. They wanted a regime change. They did not understand, however, that Jesus came to initiate a kingdom of peace. Here we see another of Wright's intellectual debts. This one he owed to black power theologian James Cone. Like Carter Woodson, Cone believed that white America had been oppressing black America for centuries. In the late 1960s, Cone set out to construct a theology that merged black power with the Christian gospel. The goal of Christianity and the meaning of the gospel, according to Cone, was to empower the black community to overthrow their oppressors. Christ did not come predominantly to die for the sins of the world, but to liberate the black people from white Christianity. Anyone who reads or listens to Wright's entire body of work will quickly realize that he did not accept all of Cohn's ideas. For example, Wright did not preach violence or hate. Cohn, by the way, once said that any sane man, race, or nation that desires freedom must first think in terms of blood. Cohn also wrote that black people's feeling of God's love was the same feeling one gets from bombing a white-owned building. But like Cohn, and as we have already heard, Wright certainly believed that white people had been oppressing black people for hundreds of years. Wright wanted the black community at Trinity United Church of Christ to understand this history. But Wright was also enough of a follower of Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus Christ to offer peace, not violence, as the solution. He also knew that King's and Cone's view of the black church were not as far apart as some white people made them out to be. King could also speak in harsh tones about American injustice. In fact, on Sunday, April 7, 1968, King was scheduled to preach a sermon entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. Of course, he never got to preach that sermon because he was assassinated three days earlier. Liberation, yes. But for Wright, liberation came through peace. This was the lesson of Palm Sunday. The prophetic theology of the black church, Wright once said, is a theology of liberation. It is a theology of transformation. And it is ultimately a theology of reconciliation. Military occupations do not produce peace. By seeking revenge against their oppressors, by callously referring to the death of Iraqi civilians as collateral damage, and by celebrating shock and awe, the American military was doing to the people of Iraq the same thing Osama bin Laden had done to them on 9-11. It was now time for another history lesson, Carter Woodson style. Wright always seemed more comfortable preaching a historically informed Afrocentrism 
than a Cone-inspired Black Power theology. He showed his solidarity with his fellow African-Americans by asking them to consider the role they played in the story of white America. He reminded them that governments lie. American leaders, for example, lied when they wrote that all men are created equal in 1776. They lied about what happened in Vietnam. They lied to the Tuskegee Airmen. They lied about the Watergate break-in. But God, Wright proclaimed, does not lie. Blacks were often victims of white American lies. But in the midst of their suffering, Wright's congregation could take comfort in a God who always spoke the truth. This God could be trusted. Don't confuse him and the American government, Wright said. Government had failed African-Americans, and it would continue to fail African-Americans. But God would always be present in the Black struggle against violence, war, slavery, racism, and injustice that many of these lies often tried to cover up. Wright concluded, now is not the time to sing God bless America. No, 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 not God bless America, God damn America for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating her citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she keeps trying to act like she is God and she is supreme. Wright was now on a roll. Five million blacks out of work. Ten million blacks can't read. One million blacks in prison. The United States government has failed the vast majority of her citizens of African descent. But there was hope. When God died and rose again on Easter, he did not merely save black Americans from their individual sins. He also lifted them out of the oppression they suffered while living under the power of a government with a long history of injustice. For the black community, God's liberation was not just about waiting for the joy of the next world, as so many Negro spirituals taught generations of black Americans to do. But God's liberation was also about breaking free and finding happiness in this world. The third right sermon we want to consider is the audacity to hope. It was originally preached in 1988 and published in a 1993 collection of right sermons. This sermon, which was based on 1 Samuel 1, centered on an 1886 painting by the English painter George Frederick Watts. The painting depicted a blindfolded female sitting on a globe playing a lyre. It was simply titled, Hope. What more enviable position could any of us ever hope to be in, Wright said, than being on top of the world with everything and everybody dancing to our music. But upon closer examination of the painting, the illusion of power starts giving way to the reality of pain. The world on which the woman sits, our world, is one torn by war destroyed by hate, decimated by despair, and devastated by destruction. The harpist sits upon a world, Wright said, that cares more about bombs for the enemy than bread for the hungry. 
a world that is more concerned about the color of skin than about the content of character. And there she is, sitting on a hellish world, wearing tattered rags and bloody bandages, covered in scars and cuts, playing a broken instrument. All of Wright's congregation could understand this kind of hell. Systemic racism, failed marriages, broken families, death, illness. Yet, Wright preached, the artist dared to entitle this painting, Hope. But Wright told his congregation that he had missed something about the painting when he first started to study it up close. Above the head of the harpist, small notes of music moved playfully and joyfully through the air toward heaven. See, Wright said, in spite of being seated on a world devastated by war, hate, distrust, disease, famine, greed, the threat of nuclear holocaust, and racism, this woman had the audacity to hope and to make music to praise God on the one string left to play. The audacity to hope. Yes, it was another time for a Jeremiah Wright history lesson. It was hope in the midst of brokenness, he said, that motivated King, Malcolm, Paulie Murray, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, and other African-Americans to create in the midst of slavery, racism, and Jim Crow. In the Old Testament, God honored Hannah's hope for a child, despite her barrenness and distress, and the prophet Samuel was born. Hope sustained African-Americans in the past, and hope would sustain African-Americans in the present and in the future. The sermon brought together Carter Woodson's call for a black history, Martin Luther King's appeal to hope on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and James Cone's passion for black liberation. Barack Obama does not remember being present at Trinity United Church of Christ when Wright preached the day of Jerusalem's fall or confusing God and government. But he was definitely sitting in a pew at Trinity for the audacity to hope. About seven years later, he would write, while boys in the pew next to me doodled on their church bulletin, Reverend Wright spoke of Sharpsville and Hiroshima, the callousness of policymakers in the White House and in the State House. As the sermon unfolded, though, the stories of strife became more prosaic, the pain more immediate. The Reverend spoke of the hardship that the congregation would face tomorrow, the pain of those far from the mountaintop worrying about paying the light bill. And yet consider the painting before us, hope. Like Hannah, that harpist is looking upward, a few faint notes floating upwards toward the heavens. She dares to hope. She has the audacity to make music and praise God on the one string she has left. People began to shout, to rise from their seats and clap and cry out a forceful wind carrying the reverend's voice up into the rafters. As I watched and listened from my seat, Obama wrote, I began to hear all the notes from the past three years of work as a community organizer swirl around me. The desire to let go, the desire to escape, the desire to give oneself up to a God that could somehow put a floor on despair. 
And in that single note, hope, I heard something else. At the foot of that cross, inside the thousands of churches across the city, I imagine the stories of ordinary Black people merging with the stories of David and Goliath, Moses and Pharaoh, the Christians in the lion's den, Ezekiel's field of dry bones. Those stories of survival and freedom and hope became our story, my story, the blood that has spilled our blood, the tears, our tears until this black church on this bright day seemed once more a vessel carrying the story of a people into generations and into a larger world. As the choir lifted back up into song, as the congregation began to applaud those who were walking to the altar to accept Reverend Wright's call, I felt a light touch on the top of my hand. I looked down to see the older of the two boys sitting beside me his face slightly apprehensive as he handed me a pocket tissue. Beside him, his mother glanced at me with a faint smile before turning back toward the altar. It was only as I thanked the boy that I felt the tears running down my cheeks. Oh, Jesus, I heard the older woman beside me whisper softly. Thank you for carrying us this far. Barack Obama became a Christian. But the tradition of the black church he embraced at Trinity was obviously not the only brand of Christianity in the United States. At the time Obama was listening to Wright preach the audacity to hope, another form of Christianity, with its own view of America and its own political vision, was building steam. It would only be a matter of time before that version of Protestant Christianity would come face to face with Obama's and Wright's understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.